Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Let my people go. We're seeking to encounter Christ in Exodus. We, uh, we encountered Christ in the burning bush. Last week, we encountered Christ in Israel's exodus out of Egypt. Today, we're going to seek to encounter Christ in the wilderness. Because between the house of bondage in Egypt and the land that flows with milk and honey in Canaan, there's a wilderness in between. And that's just the way it goes. That Jesus comes into our life and sets us free. And he calls us towards something. But sometimes we have to go through some deserts and wildernesses and hard places to get there. Anybody know about that? All right. Exodus chapter 17 verse 1. From the wilderness of sin... The whole congregation of Israel journeyed by stages. And so, Israel has been delivered out of their slavery in Egypt. A promise of a land has been made unto them, but they have to get there. And so they are journeying through the wilderness, a desert. And they get a little ways into their journey and that which you would fear most in the desert has come upon them near Mount Sinai. They have no water. They cannot locate a source of water. And so you have this great congregation of Israel in the wilderness now imperiled by dying of thirst because there's no water. And the people begin to complain and they complain against Moses. People got to blame somebody. So they blame Moses and they said, Moses, you know, why did you drag us out here into the wilderness just to die? I mean, life was hard in Egypt, but we weren't going to die of thirst there. And now here we are out here in the wilderness. And now they're already talking about stoning Moses. They're very upset. And uh, Moses cries out to God. And God told Moses what to do. He said, it's, it's, it's like at the Red Sea situation. God didn't seem to be impressed with the problem. God said, well, water, that's all you need? Here's what you do, Moses. Get, get your staff. Go over there by that big old rock, the rock of Horeb, and just smack it. Just, just strike it with your rod. Just strike it, and the water will come out. It's as if God said, I don't know why you didn't think of that yourself. It's just, it's so obvious. <laughs> and so that's what Moses did. He went to the rock of Horeb, struck it with the staff, and water came flowed in the desert to sustain the congregation of Israel. The Apostle Paul has something to say about that. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. We talked about that last Sunday. That's their crossing through the Red Sea. That's their baptism. And all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. 
for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Well, this is a a wild thing that Paul is doing here. It's very creative. It's very instructive. Um, What happens is this. The story of the rock of Horeb is first told in Exodus chapter 16. Or 17, Exodus 17. And then it's told again in a different form in a different book. In Numbers 20. It's a little bit different, but it's the same story. But Paul says, well, wait a minute. We have Exodus. And then you keep reading the Bible. Leviticus. And then you get Numbers. And you get a rock. And that brings forth water in the desert in Exodus, and then it happens again in Numbers. Uh-oh, I think that rock was following them. And guess what? That rock was Christ. That's what Paul says. He says, how did they make it in the wilderness? There was a rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now, does this mean that Paul believed that Jesus was literally, literally, a water-spewing rock crawling through the desert? following them you know people would be like I think I've seen that rock before seriously that rock (laughs) I think it's following us here's what David Bentley Hart says about this passage David Bentley Hart an orthodox theologian and Greek scholar uh, in his translation of the New Testament he has a footnote on this very passage and I quote from David Bentley Hart as should be obvious Paul frequently allegorizes Hebrew Scripture. The spiritual reading of Scripture typical of the church fathers was not their invention, but was already a widely accepted practice among Jewish scholars. It is not anachronistic to read Paul here saying that the stories he is repeating are not historical accounts, but allegories composed for the edification of readers. So, what Paul does with the rock of Horeb here in 1 Corinthians is typical of the early Christians. The, early, the first Bible they have, the only Bible they have, is the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament. Uh, the New Testament is in, is in the process of being composed and collected and canonized, and that takes quite a while. So right out the gate, the Bible they have is the Hebrew Bible, and they're going, to, they're going to find ways to make everything about Jesus. This is, this is the Emmaus way of reading the Old Testament given to us by Jesus, as Luke says. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. That's how we read the Old Testament. So, do we literally believe that Jesus was a rock crawling through the desert? Well, that's that's not the question. What we literally believe is this, that when you are in a spiritual desert, Jesus is not going to abandon you, and he's going to provide you the spiritual drink that you need. What we literally believe is what Jesus said to the woman at the well. I am the water of life. Right? Right? She's at the well, and, and Jesus says, give me a drink. And uh, she's surprised. You know, he's Jewish. She's Samaritan. Jews and Samaritans didn't have any dealings. And as I can't believe that you, a Jewish man, is going to ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink. And she says, well, if you knew who, to, who you were talking to, you would ask me for a drink. And I'd give, you, I'd give you water that would cause you never to be thirsty again. And she said, well, where are you going to get that? This well is deep. And you don't even have a bucket. And Jesus, oh, 
I, I have the water of life. And in fact, she found out that he did. That's what we believe, that Jesus is the one that can quench the thirst of our soul. That's Paul's point. That's what we believe. Amen. Exodus chapter 16 now. We're still in the wilderness. Exodus 16. The whole congregation of the Israelites set out from Elam. And Israel came to the wilderness of Sin. That's, that's just the name of it. It's not Sin, but it, okay. They came to the wilderness of Sin. Oh, it was Sin. <laughs> Which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. The whole congregation of the Israelites complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots and ate our fill of bread. I mean, they're longing for the good old days when we were slaves. <laughs> At least we had, you know, something to eat. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. These are, this is a tough bunch that Moses is having to try to lead. They're grumblers, they're complainers, and they say, you know, now we're going to starve to death, and you just brought us out of here. Why, why did you just, you just left us alone, let us stay in Egypt? At least we had enough to eat there. And, of course, Moses, you know, has to cry out to God again, and God gives the answer. Then the Lord said to Moses, I am going to rain bread from heaven for you, and each day the people shall go out and gather enough for that day. So Israel in the wilderness drank from the rock, and they ate the manna from heaven. They did that for 40 years. Now, when Jesus came, uh, his ministry was mostly in Galilee. And he feeds the 5,000, multiplies the loaves and the, and the fishes. That was right there near the Sea of Galilee. And um, the next day was the Sabbath, the day after that. He's fed 5,000. Everybody had their, full, their fill of fish and bread. The next day is the Sabbath day, and Jesus is in Capernaum, his adopted new hometown, his home base. He's in Capernaum, and he's teaching in the synagogue. So this is where this takes place. Jesus is in the synagogue in Capernaum. Those of you that have gone on the Holy Land pilgrimages with us, you'll remember the synagogue in Capernaum. It's one of our favorite places. Okay, so this is the day after Jesus has fed the 5,000. He's teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Verse 30, John 6, verse 30. So they said to him, What sign are you going to give us then so that we may see it and believe you? What work are you performing? I mean, they just, they, Jesus had just fed the 5,000. They said, yeah, we will, see, we will see another one. You know, if you, if you try to found your faith on empirical evidence, even miracles, you'll never have enough. You'll just be, you know, we'll do it again. We'll show me something else. Show me a bigger sign. They've just seen feed the 5,000, but now they're asking for a sign. And now they're going to kind of suggest something. Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Well, what they're saying is, that was pretty cool, Jesus. You gave us lunch yesterday. I'm getting kind of hungry again. <laughs> uh, why don't, you know, in the wilderness, they had manna from heaven every day. So, it's about lunchtime, isn't it, Jesus? They're trying to get him to do another miracle and feed him. 
Then Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. This is very much like the woman at the well story. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Okay, this is where you find the Eucharistic theology in the Gospel of John. They say, well, we need another sign. Maybe, maybe you could, you know, send some more bread from heaven. I mean, after all, it's in the Bible. It's, it's what God did for Israel in the wilderness. And Moses, Moses gave them the bread of heaven. He said, well, it wasn't really Moses. Jesus says, it was, it was my father. And yes, the Father is sending bread from heaven. And this bread, that, 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 that bread that Moses gave, they ate it, but they still died. And they had to have it all the time. But now the Father is sending bread from heaven that if you eat it, you'll never be hungry. And you'll never die. And they said, "Woo! give us that bread. Give us that bread. And Jesus says, I am that bread. I am that bread. And they pushed back. Uh, we won't continue reading the story, but they pushed back and they said, uh, whoa, you know, wh- what are you talking about? And, and, and Jesus doubles down and he's really emphatic. He says, unless you eat, actually the word there is chew, unless you chew my flesh and drink my blood. I mean, this, this would be an idea that could be abhorrent to an, to an observant Jew. But Jesus doesn't back off. And, and by the way, this is, this is the episode that causes so many to leave him. But Jesus says, no, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. But if you will consume my flesh and drink my blood, you will have the life of God in you. The Apostle Paul explains this to us. He says, the cup of blessing which we bless is our koinonia, our common union, our communion in the blood of Christ. The bread which we break is our koinonia, our communion, our common union with Christ. There is a way somehow through the sacrament of communion that we partake of the divine flesh and divine blood of Jesus Christ. I can't explain it. I won't try to explain it. I will confess that Christianity is a confession, not an explanation. We will explain what we can, but we always confess more than we can explain. But Jesus is the bread from heaven. Now, in the wilderness, um, the Israelites, the the whole wilderness journey was mostly a catastrophe. They, uh, it was just continual rebellion. They didn't believe God. They didn't trust. And at one point in the wilderness, as a result of sin, uh, Fiery serpents, poisonous snakes came among the people, and they were bitten by these poisonous serpents, and people were dying. And again, <laughs> Moses cries out, God of the Red Sea, and there wasn't anything to drink. Now there's snakes. Now there's snakes everywhere. People are getting bit by snakes, and they're dying. And God says, all right, here's what you do. 
And uh, he said, I want you to you, you get, fashion an image of one of these poisonous serpents that has come about because of your sin and also is bringing you suffering and death. Fashion a bronze replica, a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and just hold it up high. That's what, that's what God told Moses to do in Numbers 21.9. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. Then whenever a serpent bit someone, the person would look at the bronze serpent and live. You know, this, this is the symbol of the medical profession even today. The serpent on the pole. Okay, that's the story. Because of sin, serpents biting people. They're venomous, they're poisonous, people are dying. Moses cries out to God. God says, Moses, fashion a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, lift it up, and then anyone who's bitten, they'll look at that and they'll live. So the bronze serpent in the wilderness has to do with both Israel's sin and Israel's salvation. The serpents were a result of Israel's sin, and they were bringing about death. But when God tells Moses to fashion a bronze serpent, the symbol of their sin and death, and put it on a pole, those that looked at it, they saw the symbol of sin and death, but it didn't result in death. It resulted in healing. The poisonous serpent came about because of sin and brought death, but God provided a way for sin and death to become the source of healing in life. Say that again. God provided a way for the source of sin and death to become the source of healing and life. Now, Gospel of John. Nicodemus has come to see Jesus at night. You know who Nicodemus is? Nicodemus is the leading uh, rabbi in the Pharisee school. He's, he's famous. He's, uh, he's a gifted interpreter of Scripture. And he's perplexed about Jesus because he can't deny that God is with Jesus and yet Jesus is not really fitting his exact expectation of what Messiah would be. And so he comes in private at night, apart from the crowds, and Jesus and Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is, you know, a rabbi. He, he understands the scriptures. And at one point in their conversation, Jesus says this to Nicodemus. No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Lifted up was a euphemism for crucifixion. Crucifixion was so abhorrent that you would not use the brutal word crucified or crucifixion in polite company. You would, you would adopt a euphemism to soften it. And the accepted euphemism for crucifixion in polite company was lifted up. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, so that everyone who believes in Him may not perish, 
but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. This is very beautiful. In the late night conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, Jesus refers to the bronze serpent that Moses fashioned in the wilderness. And Jesus tells Nicodemus that the fate of the Son of Man, Jesus doesn't come out and directly identify himself as the Son of Man to Nicodemus, but I'm sure Nicodemus is probably making that assumption. And Jesus tells Nicodemus that the fate of the Son of Man will be that of the bronze serpent in the wilderness, that is to be lifted up, that is to be crucified. And Jesus is saying that his crucifixion is what will bring about the healing and salvation of the world. Just just as the bronze serpent lifted up in the wilderness was healing and salvation for those who had been bitten, Jesus said, I'm going to be crucified. But it's because God loves the world. And it's because God wants to save the world. The cross is where the sin of the world and the love of God are both revealed. I mean, just just think of a crucifix. What are you seeing? When When you see an image of Christ portrayed as crucified, nailed to a cross, what are you seeing? You are seeing two things simultaneously. You are seeing, first of all, the sin of the world. The world's full of sin, we know that. We all make our contribution to it, to one degree or another. But the world is full of sin. But this is the apex of human sinfulness because it's the greatest crime possible. It's the murder of God. This is the innocent one. This is the holy one. The very Son of God comes into our world. How sinful is our world? This is what we do to the holy one? So, so it, is, it is the perfect picture of sin. It's the worst sin Okay? The murder of God is the worst sin. But it's also the perfect revelation of God's love. Because God in Christ simply absorbs it. And forgives it. Without retaliation. The sin that we see at the cross is purely human. God did not kill Jesus. God did not crucify Jesus. But the love that we see at the cross is purely divine. So in one sense, the sin of the world and the love of God, they they collide. I'm tempted to say they become one. They, They come together as one. The sin of the world and the love of God come together as one in the cross. But one is going to destroy the other. Being disguised under the disfigurement of an ugly crucifixion and death, Christ upon the cross is paradoxically the clearest revelation of who God is. And God is the one who says, I take your sin, I take your sin, I take your sin upon myself, and I forgive it all. Why? Because God so loves the world that he didn't leave the world poisoned by sin and death. But he sends his son. To once and for all condemn sin in the flesh, the Apostle Paul says. To show us that that's what it is. But then also simultaneously 
to, out of love, forgive it. Because God didn't send his son in the world to condemn the world. Condemn sin, but not the world. He did not send his son to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. This is where the world is saved. When we look at the cross, yes, if that's what we want to see, we can see our sin. Magnified, right? But we see our sin. But more than that, we see our salvation. So as Moses lifts up the bronze serpent in the wilderness, and those that looked, and they saw, and they were healed. So now, in the preaching of the gospel, Christ is lifted up as crucified. And we say, this is what sin, this is the sin of the world. But guess what? God in Christ forgives it all. And so the cross is where the world is saved. Hallelujah. Amen. Someone asked the great theologian Karl Barth when he was saved. Dr. Barth, when were you saved? He said, A.D. 33. I love that. Great answer. All right. Jesus. Before beginning his ministry, Jesus was in the wilderness for, how long was he in the wilderness for? Praying and fasting. 40 days. Everybody knows that. Which is clearly... An allusion to Israel. How long was Israel in the wilderness? 40 years. Israel's in the wilderness 40 years. Jesus is in the wilderness 40 days. Israel, the term is they wandered. They wandered. They didn't, you know, they weren't going from point A to point B the quickest way. They were wandering. It doesn't take you 40 years to walk from Egypt to Canaan. They were wandering for 40 years before reaching the promised land. Why? Because they were unfaithful to God. The Apostle Paul says it this way, again in 1 Corinthians, with most of them, talking about the congregation in the wilderness, with most of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. In fact, only two of the original generation made it to the promised land, Joshua and Caleb. The rest perished in the wilderness. With most of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. God was not well pleased. But what does the voice from heaven say at the baptism of Jesus? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then the very next verse, that's Matthew 3, 17. That's the end of Matthew 3. And then the very next verse, Matthew 4, 1. Then, the, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And so, Jesus is the Son in whom the Father is well pleased. And Jesus goes into the wilderness to succeed where Israel failed. Where Israel was in the wilderness failing, not well pleasing, Jesus goes and embodies the whole calling and vocation and task of Israel himself. Israel does succeed because Israel succeeds in Christ. The temptations that overthrew Israel in the wilderness, Jesus overcomes. That's why we, that's why we, we departed from the ordinary lecture reading, lectionary reading for the Gospels today to read from Matthew 4 because I wanted to connect it with this. That Jesus goes where we have failed and succeeds and then invites us to succeed with him. 
Jesus overcame in the wilderness where Israel was overcome. But it's all right because Jesus becomes Israel. He just says, I'll take, I'll take the mission myself. I'll do it. I'll succeed. And Jesus became faithful to Israel that he might defeat the devil and save the world. All praise and glory to Jesus. So, are you, perhaps, in a spiritual wilderness where things are dry, where you're not feeling it, where things are lifeless? Are you in a spiritual wilderness? Well, don't despair. First of all, it's just it's a necessary part of the journey. It's, it's not unique. It's not, it's, it's, it's not something that is strange that has befallen you. All of us from time to time pass through spiritual wildernesses. So don't despair. This is, a, this is a normal thing on the way to the promised land. This happens. But the best news is um, you're not alone. You're on your journey. You're going to pass through the wilderness. You're going to make it. You're going to make it to the land that flows with milk and honey. And right now, even in the wilderness, you're not alone because Jesus is with you. Jesus is the cloud by day and fire by night that's going to lead you in the right way. Jesus is the manna from heaven and the water from the rock to sustain you. You're not going to perish. Jesus is the bronze serpent lifted up that you, though bitten and poisoned by sin and death, you look to Jesus and everything is forgiven and you are healed. Jesus is the guarantee from God that you are not going to perish in the wilderness, but you are going to make it all the way safely to the promised land. Amen and amen. Stand with me. And we're going to need to receive from the Lord the bread from heaven. We're going to need to drink of the blood of Christ that we might have life. You're going to make it. Everything's going to be all right. Jesus is with us. Cloud by day, fire by night, manna from heaven, water from the rock. The bronze serpent lifted up. All you have to do is you just look, just look. Just look and believe. And you're saved. Join with me in confessing our Christian faith. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, He rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now let's make our confession of sin, but we're doing so as we look at Christ crucified, knowing that there in that moment, it's all forgiven. Pray with me. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. 
we are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, your sins are forgiven. And this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love Him and for those who want to love Him more. So come, you who have much faith, and you who have little. You who have been here often, and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow, and you who have failed, come. Because it is the Lord who invites you. It is His will that those who want Him should meet Him here. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you.